Welcome to the Oda Magazine podcast series. We at Oda wanted to give you the opportunity to dive even deeper into the worlds of the people we get to spend time with. By creating podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and entrepreneurs in all different areas of artistry. From designers, curators, and actors to philanthropists, models, singers, and photographers. The one through line for each of the podcasts in this series is that they highlight the work of individuals from around the world who participate in and nourish culture and the conversations they inspire. Our guests discuss how they see the future, hopefully one filled with diversity, equality, understanding, and of course, passion. ODA is a platform where self-expression, imagination, and dreams are brought to the next level and shared with those looking to be inspired. Your Body is a Battleground, proclaimed the famous poster by Barbara Kruger in 1989. Well, that could be the tagline for lawyer and trans rights activist Chase Strangio. He has been fighting body and soul for close to two decades to change the laws and policies literally made to institutionalize discrimination and violence against trans bodies. Those very bodies that normative society likes to peep on but do not want to truly see. Responsibility, recognition, and acknowledgement from institutions are the basis for real equality. We are not there yet, but we are starting to see it far off on the horizon. Chase spoke with ODA contributing writer Daniela Morpurgo for this interview. So I would love to know a bit more about yourself. Um, so how did you choose um, to become a lawyer to, to begin with? Yeah, I mean, this is always a funny question for me in some ways because I, part of me never wanted to be a lawyer. I think that I thought of law as, you know, especially sort of the legal system in the United States as being deeply and inherently flawed and compromised. And so I sort of imagined being a lawyer to be one way that you inevitably consolidate power um, in sort of, historically oppressive ways. And so I really imagined my work being more critical and more outside of the system, so to speak. Um, But I ultimately decided to go to law school, um, I guess, for sort of two main reasons. Um, One just had to do with truly like a desire to find something normative and society, you know, societally acceptable. I think the more that I sort of felt like a internally felt like a freak and an outsider, there was this impulse, I think, problematic impulse in many ways, but human one, you know, find something that was like to be, to to be sort of legitimized in, in society. It was like, oh, well, at least if I'm like a weird gender variant tattooed freak, I'll be a lawyer one. And that will be something that people will, you know, quote unquote, see me in a particular way. So I think there was that, I, I mean, just like genuinely admit that that I think was part of it. And then I also sort of understood, um, over time, sort of after graduating college and starting to work with legal organizations, even as I was highly critical of them, sort of how much could be done, um, you know, accessing the institutions from the inside and and sort of working on behalf of my community um, to sort of disrupt the historical operation of legal power. And so that was sort of, that was my other, it was a strategic decision insofar as I wanted to intervene and the legal systems and that I thought could be my role in movements for social change. And then also sort of a strategic decision personally to try to like sort of offset some of the pain that I felt um, of alienation in society. Mm-hmm. And so just as you were telling me this, I was thinking that usually it's 
norms that make laws. So first come norms, as in social norms that that then become laws. So, um, but it's not always like a rule. Do you, do you think that people who are actually into minorities are crucial into this process, or do you think it would happen anyway? I mean, like, you know, in, in a way that laws are institutionalized rules in a way, and um, and um, but I I don't know. Like sometimes laws become uh, stay behind the social change. Yeah. So, no. It's uh, yeah. Sorry. So sorry. Keep going. Sorry. Uh, no. So I was thinking someone who I mean, if you were not in this field, or if not, if transgender people were not in legal studies. Do you think this change would happen anyway, or do you think that their presence is is actually crucial for that? I think that's a really good question. It's sort of how do we think about the sort of ways in which like experiential representation in legal movements changes the demands on the law, and then also sort of what happens, um, you know, and sort of what is the relationship between sort of social structures and power and legal norms and structures, you know. So I think. I mean, for me, I think I've at least convinced myself that like it, it's essential to have trans people as legal advocates, you know, otherwise all of these sort of high stakes conversations about us would happen without us. Um, and and that, that, you know, comes with a, a lot of risks, you know, it's sort of like if people are creating a contested site of the trans like quote unquote subject or the trans body and there's not a single trans person anywhere to be found I think that that's a huge problem and then you know at the same token I think that inevitably the the trans people who are who come into those spaces already are sort of compromised in a certain way and sort of we seek our own sort of legitimization of ourselves by the, the operation of power in the space so sort of what has law already done to me to make me feel like I have a voice in these spaces and so like sort of how can we you know really separate ourselves from the legal structures once we're sort of inside them I think that's a question we must ask ourselves as sort of within the system advocates which I you know I think all lawyers inherently are or at least all practicing lawyers um you know we are fully inside the, the power system and then I think too there's a real question it's sort of like well can you move power in society without moving law um, and can you, and, 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 and maybe should, should we find ways to do it without law? Because I think law, obviously, as I said at the outset, is sort of deeply compromised in many ways, but it also is such a powerful, um, you know, sort of limitation on our ability to organize. So if we, if we have no one changing the laws and no way to hold the law back, hold the state back, then what can we do in sort of the areas of cultural production and organizing material redistribution? I think we're very constrained if the law is constantly enacting violence on us. So in that sense, I do believe there's a role to play form um, and an inherently flawed one. So it's just, you have to be very careful. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, maybe I'm going off topic, but I'm really interested in this. Like, how do you see law? Is it something that is, um, is it like neutral or is it uh, inherently good, inherently evil, or is it the use that makes it good or evil and, uh, and, it, and the law is actually neutral in itself? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't believe anything. I don't believe the law is neutral. I mean, I think because any, you know, I think law is written like laws are contingent on context. And so it can't, you know, there's no neutrality in law. I mean, there's no neutrality in the, the, the written law and there's no neutrality in the enforcement of law. I mean, law is a product of, of societal power. So you can, you know, those in you know, people, the people who are writing the laws get to decide what is criminalized under the law, what is prohibited under the law, and therefore it, it, it is inherently not neutral, nor could it be implied, applied neutrally, like everyone has a perspective and a positionality with respect to the law. One of the things I hate about legal education is there's this like, sort of the myth of the impartial legal mind that sort of applies the law, you know, without prejudice and without personal view. It's like, that's, that's preposterous from, from my perspective. In the same way, I think that's preposterous in journalism. Um, you know, I think we come at everything as a subject and we have a perspective and we see everything through our own experience one way or another. That doesn't mean that it's all, you know, sort of unmitigated opinion. It's just that, you know, it's absolutely not neutral. Um, so, yeah. And then I think in terms of, you know, I, I think there's nothing that, yeah, I mean, binaries are, are so flawed. It's like what's good versus evil. It's sort of like, it's complicated and it's a, it's the product of power um, and access. So um, besides being a lawyer, you're also um, an activist and a transgender rights expert. So how did you get into activism? I mean, I guess in many ways, I mean, I think of my work as sort of a, complex combination of everything but I I definitely like came into sort of organizing and, and and sort of activism more broadly work before I became a lawyer um both in terms of not just in the LGBT or trans context but just sort of in general thinking about you know organizing against the government and the you know whether it's like my first experiences and sort of in the Midwest United States, organizing in the context of small farmers or organizing against the war in Iraq and Afghanistan in the 2000s or organizing against prisons. So sort of like those were my sort of political education context and then became a lawyer, um, but was, in, was sort of everything about how I entered law was informed by being a sort of activist that was learning from long-term organizers in a lots of different spaces over time. And so I guess, that, yeah, that just really preceded my legal education. And what I've tried to do is not lose sight of all that I learned in those spaces while in law, which is, I think, in many ways, antithetical to organizing. And so all these activities and your work landed you into this um, deputy director for transgender justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV projects, uh, which is like a, Really a job that sounds super exciting, but if you just read it like that, it's difficult to picture what you actually do. So, um, so what's your typical working day like? <laughs> well, I mean, now, oh my God, COVID changed everything. Um, no, but I mean, I think, you know, I came, I started at the ACLU eight, over eight years ago. Um, and I was pretty, you know, I was 20, no, I was 30. Um, and was it only, you know, about two and a half years out of law school. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a big elite institution. And I think it was, you know, I wasn't really sure what my place would be. I mean, I was, I had come from an organization doing exclusively trans work, focusing on prisons and jails. And, um, and then here I was at this massive elite institution with hundreds of lawyers coming from very elite backgrounds. And I wasn't really sure sort of how I would show up and what, what, 
what would be like the way that I interface both with the ACLU and with sort of the law and then sort of what type of legal advocate would I be? Um, and so for my first, you know, few years, I sort of was trying to, you know, because I have a lot of critiques of the law and I have a lot of critiques of our constitution and our legal system. And so trying to figure out, well, what did it look like to hold those critiques, but also sort of try to create change for the trans community because we were experiencing, you know, so much violence in so many different contexts. Um, and so early on in my time at the ACLU, I started representing Chelsea Manning, um, who was a, you know, trans whistleblower who, um, you know, shared uh, sort of who um, disclosed like all incidents of, you know, state <laughs> violence uh, around the world by the U.S. government and other governments um, to WikiLeaks back many, many years ago when WikiLeaks was very different. Um, and then was, you know, sort of tried and sentenced and then came out as trans and I became her lawyer again, you know, to get her access to healthcare, which sort of launched me into the sort of larger media spectacle of Chelsea's case. And I sort of was taking on other cases that had some sort of higher media profile. So all the same time I was sort of developing my litigation skills, I was thinking about what does it mean to, to sort of talk about trans people in the public domain and sort of a time when we're just beginning to see an increase in coverage of, of trans, you know, this is like 2013. So this is like pre-Laverne Cox's Orange is New Back, pre-Janet Mock's book, but I was, I knew all, I mean, I actually knew them from just being in New York and being a trans person. And so there's all these people and we're sort of cir circling at the outskirts of the media. And then it's about to have sort of like more of a media explosion. Um, this was also at this, at this time, I'm also working on marriage equality cases at the ACLU and they're going up to the Supreme Court. So there's, there's all sorts of things happening um, and I started to sort of to think about, well, I want to lead, I want I want to have more of a vision of this work. I want to think about how to transform the public discourse at the same time that we're pushing the bounds of the law in court and in legislatures and sort of telling our stories in more robust and complicated and nuanced nonlinear ways. Um, so I spent like the first five years sort of really building my own capacity and skill set to change law and so and public discourse, I guess I would say sort of how I think about it envisioning like, what does it mean to be a trans subject in the world and being sort of a trans subject that is in always, always bump it, bumping up against the sort of impulse to be legitimized by the legal system. Um, so that's like so much of my work and, and that, you know, I was and then we've worked on several US Supreme Court cases culminating in our big case that we had this last year. Um, involving LGBTQ workers that went to the Supreme Court and we won, which was shocking and incredible. Um, and then I became, I, then I, I got my current position, God, I don't know, in 2019 maybe, um, maybe 20, in, in 2019, um, which, you know, I do, I do a lot of different things, but I think it sort of falls into uh, litigation in federal and state court, sort of trying to change the law as it's applied to um, trans people, um, and then also working to stop bad things from happening. Um, so sort of like stopping proposed laws from passing. Um, and then always like the larger overlay in my job is sort of how do we talk about trans people? How do we center trans history and trans voices? And how do we sort of intervene in multiple sites of discrimination and violence in order to sort of appreciate both the pain and trauma of the discrimination, but sort of the resilience of being alive as trans people. And so it was like neither sort of no binaries of like, you know, 
sort of we're never just one thing or never just binaries in our experience of the world. So that's a lot of what I do. And then I think connected to, um, you know, my roots in different types of organizing, like staying connected to mutual aid work and direct support work um, and thinking about how that interfaces with the larger national projects that I work on. So I guess, and then day to day, I mean, it's like, it's so many different things. It's like calls and meetings and litigation planning and drafting documents and lobbying legislatures, coordinating contracts with lobbyists. Um, it's being home and trying to get my kids to attend Zoom school while I'm on calls. Um, yeah, I think the pandemic, I used to travel all around the United States and I haven't, I had the last time I traveled was February of last year. So it's been almost a year, which is just wild. So things have changed a lot. A lot, yeah. And so while you were talking about all these things you do, I was really picturing the good wife, even though, because I mean, for, I'm from an from outsider's perspective. I mean, I'm I'm Italian. So for, for us, even lawyers are kind of different. I mean, maybe they're also, the legal system is totally different. So I was, thinking like that your lifestyle would look more like the ones that you see in the in the tv shows but i mean is it do you think it's a real representation of what lawyers do like the good wife or suits or is it more or is it is it more complicated than that i mean yes i wish i had a better <laughs> um a better t sense of those actual shows i mean i think by and large my experience of being a lawyer is very different than um, sort of what's portrayed on TV and sort of the flashiness of going into court all the time. And even though when, even when we do go to court, it's not as often. And so much of it is is behind, you know, is writing at a desk and, and there is like, there's a tempo to it and it can be exciting. But, um, and some of my colleagues have more, you know, are sort of paced out in their litigation that's closer to that. I think mine is like, I'm sitting home in sweatpants a lot, like writing by myself or being on calls. Um, and sort of preparing things for different moments. And there are certainly moments when you do go to court, but even then it's such a sensationalized experience on TV by and large um, that I think is really different than how it feels. And then I think the other thing though, is that there is something to be said about like the courtroom as theater. I think that that, that is, you know, it is very much like, you know, I mean, when you're doing like civil civil rights cases, like like we do, like, it's not, it's not like the big criminal, like, you know, jury trials that you see in, in television in the same way. And, and we often aren't before juries, although sometimes we are and often we're before judges, but um, I mean, there is, you know, the courtroom is a theater in many ways, you, you know, you're, you're performing and you're performing for your opposition, you're performing for the judge. If there is a jury, you're performing for the jury, you're performing for whoever is observing in one way or another. And I think, you know, I think there is a way that the whole theatrical experience of, of litigation and, and legal advocacy is very complex and is very gendered. And so I think that's trans advocates, you know, really struggle and lots of people who, exp who have experienced historical discrimination really struggle um, to find a place within the sort of power theater of the court. Um, and I think that aspect is is really interesting because there's like a there's like a palatability question and and so, so, so it does sort of overlap with sort of representations in film, television, and theater because that 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 aspect of law is very performative. Um, and so, you know, I do think you could see like lots of actors going into law, <laughs> vice versa, because that's, you know, you are doing, you are, you know, making a performance at at various points. <laughs>
<laughs> and so has there also ever been a moment in time uh, I mean even before you became a lawyer but you already you know felt close to the transgender community or the LGBT community and you understood things were going to change for them and um, like a special event or someone who was inspiring to you um yeah so I, I mean I think for me I I I my sort of moments of like coming into awareness of my own identity and sort of wanting to engage in advocacy were you know came in college and sort of reading Dean Spade who's another trans lawyer in the U.S. and sort of his critical work on sort of on on law and sort of the problems with law um, but also his experiences as a lawyer um, you know, really were sort of formative for me, like in the sort of two, in 2003 and 2004. Um, and then, you know, he started the Sylvia Rivera Law Project um, with Gabriel Arkless. And then I went and worked there as my first out of law school job. And so I think my trajectory was very much like in the sort of spirit of what Dean and, and, and his contemporaries were, were talking about. I think we don't totally share the same view now, um, but, but so much of my influence, you know, so much of what influenced me to go to law was, was, was him, if, if I'm honest. Um, and, and then when I got to Sylvia Rivera Law Project is in 2009, 2010, I think there were other people who really inspired me to sort of think about law in different ways. So Dean sort of you know, was like the, one of the catalysts and inspirations for going to law school. And then once I was a lawyer, I think there was Tourmaline, who's an artist and an activist and organizer and sort of historian of trans experience in the U.S., um, was my colleague at SRLP at Sylvia Rivera Law Project and, and sort of was a huge influence on me. Um, and then Lorena Borjas, who was a collaborator of mine who died of COVID in March, um, you know, those were like some of the people who sort of helped me to be grounded and sort of what, how to stay in law and, and, and stay grounded. Um, but I think, yeah, like going back to like the early 2000s, it was sort of like Dean's work and, and some other people then and sort of thinking about, well, there's all this possibility in law, um, even from a more critical perspective. And so after 2010, I mean, in the in the 10 years, uh, um, so in the last decade, uh, trans the transgender presence in media has greatly increased. And what do you think made it possible? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just so many, it's like a complex sort of dynamic thing. And and I don't, you know, I, I think it's hard to point to any like one thing, but I think back to like when I worked as in, in 2010 to maybe 2012, when I was at Sylvia Rivera Law Project and we would get calls from the media about anything that we were working on, we absolutely wouldn't answer. Like any media story that was covered was covered in a, you know, sensationalized and offensive way and ultimately undermined our policy work. And so there was this impulse to sort of hide from the media, which I think is like a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you're like, you're hiding and therefore you're not putting yourself out there so that nothing is disrupting the narrative that is out there and then you're just sort of stuck in this cycle i think then what starts to happen is are, are lots of things you know I, I, the 
the 2010 decade, you sort of have the rise of social media and sort of the democratization of information across social media platforms, I think has an impact. You start to see the beginning of trans people emerging on film and television screens and not just in the sort of ways that trans people have been included in the past. Um, like I think disclosure, the film disclosure traces this really well. Um, so, you, you know, and again, he's, there's still a sensational, sensationalization and, and a hypersexualization of the trans body in this context, but you start to see a disruption, like a, a shift um, where you, you know, you have Carmen Carrera, you have Laverne Cox, you have Candace Kane, you have Janet Mock, um, and then, you know, and and then you get transparent, which is complicated. But so you start to have a things shift in the sort of U.S. Hollywood discourse. Um, and so, and then even like I think about Chelsea Manning was, you know, also played a huge role because she was covered internationally. Her story um, in 2013, she comes out, there's lots of press. And then in the context of her story being reported, you start to I felt my experience was I'm like, oh, I'm now a trans person. I'm her lawyer. I'm going on TV to advocate for her. I'm going to tell you what you can and can't do. So my personal experience was I started going on television, you know, on the sort of advocacy side and doing media in 2013 at the same time that you sort of have Laverne Cox's rise, Janice rise. And, um, and so you start to see more and more people pushing back on the narratives that had been the only narratives for a long time. Um, and then, and then at that same time, sort of, if you look at the state of the sort of mainstream legal movement in the United States, 20, by 2015, you have marriage equality, the Obama administration is in its second term and shifting to a more inclusive stance on trans issues. Um, the backlash to marriage is entirely focused on trans issues. And so then we're, we're compelled finally as a movement to like contend with moving the ball forward, so to speak, on trans rights, rights in the legal sense. Um, so I think there's just like a, you know, a complex dynamic set of things that are going on um, that sort of lead us to where we are today, which is both in like a moment of deep regressive backlash in the sort of anti-trans turf rhetoric around the UK and the US in particular, but then also sort of moving forward with like more examples of decriminalization of sex work efforts, more examples of trans representation and that isn't just limited to one or two things, more trans storytellers, more trans artists, more, you know, all over the world sort of, and and sort of the, you know, continually, continued leadership of black trans women and black trans femmes um, in the US and the UK at least sort of pushing the sort of historical truth of our longstanding presence. And, and that sort of is like a theme that comes back as we continue to sort of move forward in, in a variety of ways. So I think it's, yeah, I mean, and it's been interesting for me because my whole like sort of public career has also sort of coincided with this time. So I can really like feel it on a visceral level. And so however, to this exposure also followed some kind of backlash and rebound effect with the Trump administration and also you know, like um, radical movements that you, you just mentioned. And so, I mean, how would you explain it? Is it like a physiological reaction or is there something to be worried about? Sorry, the, the moment that we're in right now, the back. Like, I mean, yeah, it just finished, hopefully. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think so many things are going on right now. I think that, you know, so, you know, the the rise of, of Trump and sort of the the sort of rise of fascism around the world in a variety mm -hmm. of contexts is sort of inextricable to this backlash against, you know, the 
the disruption of gender norms and sort of you see the emergence of this gender ideology in Latin America and Eastern Europe and the US um, and sort of this idea to sort of like control the body and, and sort of reassert power over the like white uh, colonial heterosexual family as being sort of this impulse that's driving right-wing governments around the world. And so I think the conditions that led to that are still very much there. And like, thankfully we were able to get rid of Trump um, after four horrible years, but so many of like the underlying white supremacist movements in the US are still very much active. There's so much anti-trans backlash already to the change in federal administrations. Um, and, and so I think we're about to move into, you know, even more sort of backlash in the states. We have the Trump, unfortunately, sort of had a massive effect on the federal court system in the US. And so we're, we're gonna be dealing with the consequences of that for a very long time. Okay. Um, so, but one of the final takeaways in disclosure. Uh, so yeah, this uh, the documentary about transgender portrayed by media is that any kind of representation that is goodwilled is actually positive, even with all the inter internalized stereotypes. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I was, I was trying to remember, like, did they say that? I mean, so, yeah, I know Jen says, like, at some point, Jen Richter says, oh, we, there, we just need more representation. It's not like they all have to be, like, good. And I think partly that's true. It's like, we want to be able to have sort of, like, the, the proliferation of so many stories, like, good stories, bad stories, messy stories. We want to have, like, not just, like, the perfect trans subject in all representation. I think that there is very harmful representation out there still, though. I don't think all representation is good. I think, actually, any representation can be harmful harmful, even good representation, because, you know, the sensationalization of like the trans celebrity or the, um, the trans body in film and television is, is complex when you're dealing with, well, what's going on on the ground for real trans people who are experiencing backlash, discrimination, violence. Um, so I think, no, I don't think all representation is inherently good. I think I would like to see more. I don't think what is inherently or what, what it, I don't think that there are certain types of representation that are bad just because the trans subject isn't sort of neat and tidy. I mean, I think I want to see all types of trans people out there represented um, in, in a multitude of ways. Like, you know, there's like a capaciousness to our experience and our ways of embodying gender. Um, so there's that. I think that, you know, what what I think is true in, in disclosure and sort of what I think is so valuable about the critical insights it provides is that, you know, there has been so much damage from there being singular narratives of transness in the in the media. We have had decades of the idea being reinforced that we are fraudulent, um, that we are deceptive, that we are, you know, somehow um, like dangerous, and that that you know, since that message has been reinforced for so long in such an aggressive way, and it's sometimes very subtle, but sometimes over the top, that we just have so much work to undo that. And in order to undo that, we have to build out many, many trans narratives. Um, and I think that that is something I very much feel and that we have a lot of work to undo and to move forward. Um, and that ultimately our legal and policy work is inextricable from that. We're not going to move judges, we're not going to move legislators who have been internalizing those messages from the media their whole lives. Um, if we don't also shift the public discourse, if we don't create more trans stories led by trans people, we need trans art, we need all of that. Otherwise, we're going to be deeply entrenched um, in the regressive and violent depictions of us 
that have any idea. Even though, I mean, most of the trans representation, even though it's represented and even though there is a good intention behind it, is actually seen through cisgender eyes or by cisgender eyes, because mostly mm, directors are, are cisgender, straight, I mean, mm, usually conform conforming to society. So what I was wondering is, is it ever possible for trans people to actually appropriate their own narration? If even people of color are still struggling for that after 50 years and more mm, since the abolition of, uh, of uh, segregation. Yeah, I mean, I think in some way, like, of course, um, you know, the world, like power, like the viewer is going to be situated in their own power dynamics and structures. And that ultimately, like when we produce content, it's being consumed and internalized by audiences that may not be part of, you know, the community. Um, I think from my perspective, like the, the important thing for trans people telling their own stories and creating trans content is, is to not be sort of beholden to the cis gaze all the time. It's like, I don't want to make art or I don't want to be, you know, involved in cultural production that's exclusively designed to please cis people. And so I think the way that sort of we move forward is to sort of not situate ourselves always in relation to cisness, but sort of to build out sort of gender expansive ways of thinking about ourselves and what is possible in the world that isn't catering to the constraints and limitations of being cis, which I perceive to be inherently inferior. <laughs> I joke, but also no. not. <laughs> I understand. Um, so, and eventually all this trans exposure, so, um, has it actually been translated into legal um, bureaucratic progress in your experience? Has, has it helped? Um, I mean, I do think it has helped in some way. I think it's both and, right? Like it has helped. Like I, you know, often talk about how, um, you know, when we were working on a, uh, um, on a case at the Supreme Court on behalf of Gavin Grimm, who was a trans student who was excluded from the boys' bathroom just because he is trans, um, that he, that Laverne Cox, you know, mentioned the case in his name when she was presenting at the Grammys. And that single, like, one minute changed more about the cultural moment and the legal advocacy than what we had done in our previous two years. So absolutely, there's ways to leverage celebrity to leverage representation that has a huge impact on laws and policies you know when you when you're before the u.s supreme court those nine justices are paying attention to what's going on in the world so i think that there is a very like you know sort of reciprocal sort of feedback dynamic that happens between cultural production and cultural narrative and then legal and policy change i just don't think either one of them is sort of gonna you know, it's not like representation alone is going to make good policy or that representation alone is going to put food on the table or stop people from being murdered or stop people, you know, from being evicted and, and criminalized. I think it's just that, you know, it can help us move at power through changing norms and conversation. But if we over rely on it as a solution, it's going to be, um, you know, at our, you know, to our detriment. Um, so this is a question that I, that I often ask about power because I am I'm very fascinated by the dynamics of power because um, even when power is in the hands of someone who is actually part of a minority, uh, as it happened for Margaret Thatcher, who was one of, who was mm -hmm. the first prime minister 
um, a female prime minister in the in the UK, actually that power does not always, I mean, actually almost never is not managed in a more balanced manner. I mean, if there is always a, patriarch, uh, a patriarchal logic behind it, you know, in the way it's managed. So, so I was wondering, even though we are actually trying to, to fight for equality and for rights, do you think that power even within a minority group would be handled in the same way, in the same patriarchal way, in the same unequal way that is actually handled by anybody else eventually? Yeah, I think that these systems are, are so much bigger than an individual. You know, it's sort of like, yes, you, you can go in with all the best intentions in the world, but if you're operating within a, a a legal a structure that is inherently supremacist in a multitude of ways that you are still always going to be reproducing that so it's sort of like yeah that you're always going to be co-opted by the system to an extent which means you're always going to be reproducing the power to an extent then the question is and i mean i think we have unlimited examples of how sort of identity-based representation on its own is just not the answer i mean we need representation from people of different backgrounds but that isn't the same as sort of a political intervention you know it's not the case that having margaret thatcher or um you know having clarence thomas or amy Cone, you know amy barrett in the u.s supreme court like these are not good <laughs> you know, political moments of power shifting. They're in deeply entrenched and tokenized. Um, and so I think, yes, we need way more than, than just simple representation. It's like, I don't wanna see a trans candidate just for a trans candidate's sake. I would love to see a trans candidate who brings a perspective that comes from their experience of transness that is working to destabilize power. That I wanna see. I don't wanna see someone just because they're trans because there's nothing, you know, that's always inherently gonna be, you know, disruptive about that. I mean, you can, yeah, sure. You know, you can appreciate that, you know, I appreciate, you know, what Clarence Thomas has had to go through. I appreciate what Margaret Thatcher had to go through. I don't respect them in any way as, as, as sort of political figures. I don't think they, I think they've been deeply harmful, catastrophically so. And so you can sort of, you know, it's like, I don't think, you know, there's lots of examples of trans people who I think are terrible and would are just catastrophic for the, you know, sort of maintenance of very dangerous and harmful power structures. So yeah, I think identity is is absolutely not sufficient <laughs> to disrupt power. Um, so working in the field uh, of legal studies and, and, you know, as a lawyer, um, you always see injustices and also institutionalized uh, injustices and that are invisible to, to, the, to the legal system and sometimes it's not possible to overcome them so how do you cope with that when something is when you don't manage to change something yeah i mean i think you know we you know, there's so much tr sadness and trauma and violence around us all the time. And I think that there's so many ways in which we fail to make the changes that we wish to make, especially when we're intervening in these systems that so often adapt to maintain power. And, and you know, for me, it's it's about, you know, staying connected to the reason for doing the work, the long-term vision, the role, you know, my job isn't to, you know, change everything, you know, in one moment, uh, you know, we have, we're building movements over long periods of time learning from each other, um, which requires a certain amount of patience and humility. Um, so I, you know, there are days when I am like really sad and beat down and feeling like, God, 
can't do this or it's so disheartening. Um, lots of days like that for the four years of Trump and before that too. And, and since it's been, you know, it's incredibly challenging to, you know, sit with and try to confront the really deeply and, and in many ways inherently violent nature of our legal and, uh, you know, political systems. But I think it's, you is also like remembering our history, staying connected to people creating art and, 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 and sort of historical um, remembrances and, and sort of future imaginations um, allows us to sort of stay hopeful in the work, even when we're feeling defeated. And so, you know, I've been able to, you know, I've been doing, you know, this work one way or another, you know, since college and even during college. So, you know, for the last 15 to 17 years, just, you know, keeping learning and keeping fighting and, and, and I'm always meeting new people who are challenging me and teaching me and that just feels like such a gift. And so uh, is there like a special project uh, you're happy about or a milestone you have to reach for the community? Yeah, I mean, I, th I mean, I know, I think I'm very like sort of nonlinear in my thinking. I've never been good at like, where do you see yourself in five years or what is it you hope to achieve? I think for me, it's very much like, I just want to keep you know, pushing, pushing on what I believe to be possible, learning from other people who challenge me to imagine things that were never in my wildest dreams. Um, and so I guess in some ways, like my, what I'm hopeful for and excited about is this moment of learning. Um, as hard as it is to be like under such attack in so many different ways and, and trying to fight that back is that we're also sort of in connection with each other, um, and, and that just means we have an opportunity to, to keep like building the magic that is transness, creating more space for people to occupy their experiences of self-determination, their, of their bodies, of their spirits, of their minds, their identities. And, and that to me is, you know, the greatest gift and the greatest sense of possibility. Um, so in, in pandemic times, why do you think HIV is still such a silent precedent? I mean, it's, it's still almost invisible to mass media. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think the history, I mean, if you look at the history of HIV and actually all pandemics in many ways, it's sort of, my friend Stephen um, Thrasher writes a lot about this, about how sort of there's this way where there's like this viral underclass and Stephen talks about how, you know, there's people that are set up to be exposed to sort of mass death in one way or another. And if we look at sort of the history of the HIV, you know, epidemic globally, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, we've allowed it to, um, you know, sort of be a part of attacking like largely, you know, black and brown communities in the global south, the black and brown communities in the US, um, ways in which that, you know, we're actually creating the conditions that make it impossible materially for people to survive and HIV is part of that. It's And, and so it's COVID, you know, it's sort of like when we deal with these pandemics, with these pandemics, the public health disaster aspect of them is so much not it is so much a social and political problem of sort of who do we position um, to be more precarious to death and dying um, and sickness in, in various ways and like how we understand, you know, who is sick and who is well and who do we position um, for health and how do we sort of understand what health is. I mean, there's so many different overlapping, you know, supremacies involved. Um, and I think the, the reality of HIV is sort of very much, you know, continues to be something that ravages like the sort of ravages the world and in the US you can see we you know continue to criminalize HIV we continue to um, limit people's access to care and treatment um, preventive um, and uh, and 
and non-preventive. Um, and, and I think we're just in, it's just a very much a part of the ways in which the entire structure of our country and in many ways, you know, global capitalism around the world is um, to make resources scarce for many and, and, and sort of overly abundant for some. And, and that I think is sort of how pandemics end up re ravaging, you know, entire populations who are, you know, set up to not have the um, levels of security, comfort, healthcare, housing, um, food that they need to survive. So in India, see transness as stability, rethinking intersections between trans and, um, and disabled embodiments, writer Alexander um, Barrel compares the experience of his disability with the ones of his uh, transsexuality, um, and he finds um, different uh, similarities, such as the social and psychological pain of being invisible to society or even not having functional reproductive organs according to the designated gender. So yet the trans community is, uh, is reluctant to be recognized uh, as a debilitated category. And um, I mean, I feel um, there is not much, I mean, there, um, there is not much, um, there is not, I mean, they're not keen on, you know, receiving social and sanitary assistance um, because they don't want to be associated to a debilitated category. So do you think it's because patholog pathologizing gender dysphoria would tap into the very taboo of mental illnesses in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I've always been someone who's been sort of very pro, not, I mean, I think lots of aspects of the law are like deeply problematic, but I've, I have not been resistant to sort of engaging with disability and disability justice as sort of a centerpiece of moving trans experience. I mean, our experience of transness is very much an experience, is experience of being disabled by dominant society. And that if our only resistance to it is because of ableism and because of the pathologization of mental illness and the mental health and and physical disability. And so to me, it's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, that the, the structures of discrimination are, you know, impose on us pathologizing, you know, impulses and, and, and sort of unadaptive aspects of society that then make us as trans people or as people with disabilities as sort, as sort of cast outside the system and stigmatized and pathologized for it rather than, and, and so therefore I, my experience of transness um, and my experience with sort of mental illness, I think is very much that, you know, it is, it is, you know, it is only because of a desire to eradicate us on some level and quote unquote correct us into a normative structure that we experience so many difficulties accessing care to be our whole selves. And so it's, it strikes me that there, it's very much a part of the same set of interventions against a, a very like similar and overlapping form of societal discrimination and violence. Um, but there is the impulse to sort of divide us and then uh, the impulse to distance, you know, sort of trans narratives from disability ones. I think that's the wrong call and I think it's born of ableism and not really anything else. So you think that even the transgender community is a victim or I mean it's guilty of being ableist in a way? Yeah I mean at least my experience in US advocacy it's oh you know don't equate this with mental illness you know we we are you know high functioning or some other sort of reactions it's like I don't know what that means like what does it mean was I mean 
what sickness is contingent and, and that we you know distancing oneself from illness just for the sake of maintaining power is inherently ableist. But at the same time, if the trans community would accept the fact that um, dysphoria is an illness, it could be even mentalized in a way by um, this cisgender gen- this community. I mean, it, I mean, the traditional power in saying, oh, trans people are actually ill, so you should keep them away. So what's the better thing to do in this case? Is it better to conform to society in order to, in order to make change, to, to get into it? Or is it better to take a stance, to, to take a stance and say, I mean, yes, it's an illness, but there is nothing bad about it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's okay in a way. Well, I think it's sort of like, it's an illness, you know, or it's a disability. And so far as society is unwilling to sort of hold the complexity of our experiences of mind and body. And that the answer is no illness and no disability should be cast aside. No one should relinquish autonomy and and control over their bodies. And that the person who understands best what they need is the person is the person themselves. Um, And so I think that it's more about we sort of name our experiences. We don't have to distance ourselves from anything except for the impulse to control and def- people's bodies. Um, and that I think is something that, you know, it harms people's access to reproductive health care, it harms people's access to physical health care, mental health care, gender affirming health care. I mean, all of those systems of violence in the medical industrial complex and the medicalization and over pathologization, you know, have a long and, 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 and dangerous history. Um, so, yeah, I, so I guess that's what I'll say, uh, you know, about that. I mean, I think it's, it, it, it's not like a, it's not a one or the other. It's a, you know, we should watch our impulse to distance ourselves from anything. And if our, if our critique is, well, if we, if we align here, then state power will be more repressive Then our, imp- then our intervention should be to stop state power from being repressive for everyone. Um, because ultimately that if, if people's body, if the state is allowed to control people's bodies and sterilize people against their will or take away their reproductive health care, I mean, that's going to harm us in the long run. We've seen it now in the U.S. and the U.K. where long histories of legitimizing sort of eugenics in various forms leading to the state coming in and criminalizing or taking away health care for trans youth under a theory that, you know, eradicating transness is some sort of legitimate political goal. With so much more exposure and media presence for trans people. There are even more cases of young, I mean, teens and even children who are coming out as trans. And so, and this event and this phenomenon is actually used and taken by suprematists or even by traditional people. Um, and it's used to say that, uh, that actually this is um, just a, a trend or you know a phase or something that is called to be because of the because of all this presence and so what's what's your opinion on that is it do you think it is there a truth in it or it's actually because they feel more safe to come out Oh yeah, there's no truth in it. In the, I mean, the entire weaponization of, of transness by TERFs, by J.K. Rowling, by Abigail Schreier, by everyone on the sort of anti-trans right um, is sort of predicated on, the, on this idea that if there's more trans people, it's proof that transness is fake instead of, you know, that we, we're living, you know, the goal is to create conditions for people to live as their sort of full and authentic selves. And, you know, their narrative is always, you can't win because if you if you sort of, if you start to identify as trans and then realize that you have a different identity later on, then they say, see, 
transness isn't real. But if you start to identify as trans when you're really young and you're sort of maintain that identity for your life, they're like, see, someone made you do it because you were impressionable. I mean, the entire discourse is set up to make it impossible to be trans and have that be legitimate. But that is the nature of the anti-trans discourse. Um, and you can see it because it starts out in this, oh, I'm concerned about young trans kids transitioning. I don't want them to have medical treatment. But those same people like within a week are like, actually they shouldn't play sports. They shouldn't be affirmed. They shouldn't have clothes. You know, it's like, and you push, you sort of follow someone with a, a sort of anti-trans narrative arc for like a week. And you can see that it start, it may start in one limited sort of articulation, but very quickly when you have like that level of anti-trans animus underlying it, that it's, ex they just don't want people to be trans. And that is a eugenics goal that we should expose as such. They are trying to eradicate trans people uh, under the guise of a protectionist discourse either and usually about protecting who they deem to be cisgender women, which is both, by the way, cisgender women and trans masculine people who they believe to be cisgender women. Um, and uh, so they use protectionist rhetoric for eugenic purposes, which is such a deep part of white supremacy that it's just impossible to see turfism for anything other than another manifestation of, of global white supremacy. Um, since that's exactly what, you know, the same history of protecting white women as this sort of idea has been used to maintain white supremacy forever. Isn't it ironic that JK Rowling is actually the Voldemort of his story? Yes, <laughs> I know. Someone on like Twitter like had something about me the other day that was like, referred to me as he who used to be a she. And I was like, wow, that is like the ultimate turf like overlap like like they're like positioning me as both like the Voldemort and trying to misgender me and I'm like wow that's like a JK Rowling US turf crossover um but yeah I mean JK Rowling you know she built her own uh you know evil evil person to and and just occupied that role with yeah. a vengeance <laughs> So um, if gender expression and gender identity do not necessarily coincide with each other, um, is our eagerness to conform to our designated gender actually dictated by strictly binary society? Or how can we recognize when the dysphoria we feel comes from within or from outside, like from what the world tells us is, is right? I mean, I think it's, I think this is a really hard and interesting question, which is, you know, if you're never told about gender categories, then how do you know that you belong to one? And I think that it's a combination. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing more and more people identify as non-binary is because the more you relax the categories themselves, you can, you still experience dysphoria. It's just not, I must be in a binary category. It's that, you know, my experience of self is not fully aligning with how I feel inside and how that is reflected back to me in the world. And so it's always going to be sort of shifting based on context, just as all gender shifts based on context. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's dynamic. I think, um, you know, I think dysphoria is always going to be some, in some ways, a, you know, a combination of societally, you know, contingent and and sort of internally physiologically driven. Um, you know, I think about like, I don't have a particularly strong binary identity, um, but I have experiences of dysphoria um, that are just sort of around like how I inhabit my body and how my body is interacting in the world. Um, and I think that's sort of, that's an, you know, an experience that, you know, 
you know, it's, it persists across time and cultural context. So we, you know, I think it's very much something that, you know, will, will always be there and it's sort of the manifestations of it may change over time, depending on sort of what is available to us at what, you know, at what age can we be affirmed and who we are, what sort of, you know, medical treatments are available and do, you know, how do we make sure people feel like they're accessible? Um, and I just believe so much in this sort of idea that our, our journey with our body is always this, you know, complex and dynamic thing. We're not, none of us are just moving from like point A to point B. We sort of integrate our experiences, both like our sort of like incredibly joyous and exuberant ones, our traumatic ones, and then, you know, that we have a self that is there and that we're constantly trying to contend with and affirm. So, so I think it's very, I think, I think it's very complex. I don't think it's, I don't think it's either just like a strictly, you know, it comes from within, but I also don't think it is strictly, it comes from without. So you, if you, did you find your, your own balance between these two different things and continue? Have I found my own balance? Who's yeah. That? Yeah, I mean, I think it changes over time, you know, like what was available to me in terms of gender options was really different when I was 22 than it is now. And so it's like I have more ways to play with things because I just am more aware, um, whereas I just wasn't before. And there weren't many, there weren't as many people around me or out. So I think, yeah, I think I have found a, a like a, I, a happy home in gender, so to speak, um, but it continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. And it's connected to desire and to community and to power and to the world and all sorts of different ways and um, you know when you're stuck at home in your sweatpants all day you know your experience of gender changes in ways that it doesn't when you're out in the world and so so final question is what do you expect for Joe Biden's presidency in relation to transgender rights and other minority groups in the U.S.? I mean, it's a, so, I mean, it's like a combination of things. I think it's a huge improvement on where we were. I think Trump was a disaster. There was so many things that were so dangerous and bad and every level of government at the federal level. I mean, having, you know, Congress was in a horrible place. The president was doing horribly regressive things and every, you know, on immigration, on racial, you know, racial justice, on policing, on trans rights, on abortion. Um, so moving away from that strictly like horrible, posture is important. Um, and I think there will be good sort of positive changes. I don't think it'll be nearly enough. I think we have to push very hard to get the Biden and Harris presidency to do some meaningful things for every community, including the trans community. And I think that we're going to have to deal with that in the context of a backlash in our state government. So the state and local governments are going to react to having this presidency that we're going to then have to deal with really negative reactions and backlash. And we're now dealing with the federal court system having been largely taken over by Trump appointees. And so the balance of that power is is scary. So I think, you know, and we're still living under this like uh, completely uncontrolled pandemic that we're not doing a good job of managing. And so I think there's just going to be a lot of things that are deeply challenging in the coming year um, to sort of lay the groundwork for holding this administration accountable, dealing with the backlash and dealing with the just a tremendous amount of loss that's occurred in many ways over the last, you know, five years. Um, and, and so I, while I have some hope, I also am like coming from a, a place of bracing myself for all of the fights ahead. Don't want to miss an episode of the Oda podcast? All you have to do is download our app in the Apple Store or visit Oda's Spotify account. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends about the new Oda podcast. <laughs>